Okay, here we are. We are in the middle of chapter 44. And we started to speak about a love for Hashem that every Jewish person has, no matter who they are, just by virtue of being Jewish. And it was the love of nafshi ivisicha, my soul, I desire you. A person loves their soul. They love life. And when a person feels tired or weak, they yearn for it. They're exhausted and they're saying, my soul, I desire you. And the Zohar speaks about this verse. And the Zohar says, it means, the the regular way to translate this verse is, my soul desires you. Speaking to God, my soul desires you. But the Zohar said it means we're speaking to Hashem that he is our soul. And we're saying, my soul, I desire you. And we realize that Hashem is our soul of souls. We have this thirst and this longing to cleave to him. And what does that impel a person to do? It impels a person to do things that's beyond nature, that's beyond their regular, everyday, ordinary behavior. It impels them to wake up from their sleep and run to study Torah because they know that Hashem is in the Torah. And they're like, it's too long of a break. It's too much time that I didn't get to have this experience of unification with Hashem. So they get up from their sleep and they run to study Torah because they truly desire Hashem. They desire Hashem because they say, You are my soul. You are my life of lives. I desire you. There's an incredible story of the Mittala Rebbe. This is the son of the author of the Tanya, where he was on a community visit for communal concerns to this community of Shklov. And he spent so much time with community concerns, he didn't have enough time to study Torah, his regular schedule the way he usually did. So on the way home, he was rushing the wagon driver. He said, rush, 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 rush. They were rushing so fast that the wagon driver said that one of the horses detached from the wagon. And he said, go chase the horse, get the horse. He said, don't you want to stop? Should we take a little break? I don't want to stop. The second they got home, the Mithila Rebbe alighted from the carriage, went dashing into his house, still in his coat, grabbed a volume of Talmud from his bookshelf, and stood in that position studying all night. Mm. And this was somebody who was like longing for the experience of studying Torah, of unity with Hashem because he wasn't getting it enough on his travels. And the, the witness, the Malamed, the teacher who saw the Mithil Rebbe taking that Talmud from the shelf said, his hands were trembling with so much excitement, more than a father who hasn't seen his son for 20 years, his only child, and now is united with him. So this is the kind of love. And the author of us says that this love is different than the other loves we were talking about. Last chapter, we talked about a love that we produce by meditation, which is very important. And then there's a love that comes as a gift from Hashem. And both of these loves have many, many levels. But this love, the author of us says about it, the Nafshi Ivisicha love, he says, achas hi ahava. Yet there is one singular and unique love. It is one. It is not one that comes in levels. It is just one simple kind of love. And why is this love simple? And what makes it different than the other loves that it doesn't come in levels to people? Because the other kind of loves, the one that we produce through meditation, or the one even that we got as a gift from Hashem, are something additional to us, something appended, something that we didn't have, and then they are acquired. When it comes to this love of the nafshi ivisicha, it's inherent. It's who we are. And it comes from the place where all Jewish people truly are one. 
Like we learn in the 32nd chapter of Tanya, Shekulan Mat Imais. This is paraphrasing words from Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs. All of them are, Mat Imais really means joined. We're all really like one entity. At that place where we're all one entity, it's a universal love. There's no such things as levels. It's just simple and it's basic to all of us. We all have this kind of love. And that's the love of Nafshi Ivisicha. Now the altar is going to take us yet higher to another kind of love that we all have, and it surpasses even that kind of love. A greater and more intense love than this, meaning than the love which results from realizing that God is one's true source, true soul and life, a love which is likewise concealed in every soul of Israel as an inheritance from our ancestors, is that which is defined in Raya Mahemna, in description of Moshe's divine service, like a son who strives for the sake of his father and mother, whom he loves even more than his own body, soul, and spirit, sacrificing his love for his father and mother in order to redeem them from captivity. The first love is a love of self. Why do we love Hashem? Because we realize that He is our deepest self. How far does it extend? It extends as far as our self could go. This love that we're talking about is a love that is beyond the self. It's about loving someone more than you love yourself. The Zohar speaks about someone who loves his parents more than he loves his own body, soul, and spirit. He's willing to relinquish life for them in order to free them from captivity. So it's beyond the self now. The first love is Hashem is my soul. He is myself. That's me as far as I could extend. This is, I love him more than I love myself. And actually this love is a love that the Zohar describes as being the love of Moshe Rabbeinu. This is Moshe's level of love. And yet, we all possess that kind of love. This level of love is more selfless than that described by the phrase, my soul, I desire you. For love which results from realizing that Hashem is one's true life will only be as intense as a person's desire for life itself. It will not demand total self-sacrifice, which is the opposite of life. The love of a child for his parent, however, is not limited to the love for his life. His parent's life takes precedence over his own, and he is ready to give his very life in order to save theirs. So now this is not any child. This is not the normal way of things. It doesn't mean that every child is willing to give up his life for his parents. But there are some children who would give up their life for their parents, and it's very different in the human experience than it is with our relationship with Hashem. Because in the human experience, although we started out as literally being part of our father, but through pregnancy and then birth, we have become a separate being. And in fact, halachically, chayecha kaitmin, your own life takes precedence. And even when it comes not to life, but to property, the Talmud says, taking care of his own lost object or his father's lost object, he can't take care of both of them at the same time. His own lost object takes precedence. But it's different in our relationship with Hashem because we've never become a separate entity. We are really, really, truly one. And that kind of relationship 
obligates us in a way to just surrender and give up everything, thinking nothing about ourselves. Now, even when it comes to the first kind of love, even when it comes to the love of nafshi evisicha, my soul, I desire you, sometimes a person will give up their life. But they're not giving up their life in a total sense. They may be giving up their life in a physical sense in order to preserve their spiritual life. Like, for example, if God forbid someone is forced between conversion or death, normally a Jewish person choose, chose death. Why? Well, it depends where this love came from, but from this level of nafshi ivisicha, my soul, I desire you, they realize that they don't want to discontinue their true life. So they gave up physical life in order to continue living their true life. The example that Rabbi Steinsaltz gives is if somebody has to choose between losing a limb, God forbid, or losing life. It's a difficult decision, but it's a simple decision. Obviously, they're going to give up their limb in order to save their life. Is that a painful decision? Of course, but they realize that life takes precedence. So the same thing too, when someone gives up their life out of this place of love for Hashem, knowing that He is my life, they're giving up physical life in order to preserve, preserve their truest life. But then there's a whole nother level of giving up life. It's giving up even spiritual life. Think about our father Abraham. When Hashem was asking him to do with Akedas Yitzchak, here he was living Hashem's dream, spreading the message of Hashem, telling people never to sacrifice children. And suddenly his spiritual life was at risk. Everything he preached and the continuity of his legacy of serving Hashem, it didn't seem like it continue. It could continue if he sacrificed his son, didn't have any living progeny, and plus was acting in a way that was totally opposite of the way he lived and preached up until now. He wasn't just sacrificing physical life. He was sacrificing spiritual life. Or think about Moshe Rabbeinu, the example of the Zohar. This is the paradigm of somebody who gives up his life in order to save his mother and father from captivity. The sacrifice Moshe had to have in order to be the leader of the Jewish people was spiritual sacrifice. And in fact, he was so devoted to them that when Hashem wanted to, God forbid, annihilate them, he said, just erase me out of your book. This was no consideration of self on every, any level. It wasn't physical consideration of self and it wasn't spiritual consideration of self. He didn't have any self-interest at all. So can we imagine such a high level of love? And yet the Altar Rebbe is telling us that we all possess it. And this is what he says. This manner of service, oh, here's, here's from the commentary, and then I'll read what he says. This manner of service is not limited to Moses alone. It is within the province of every Jew. For have we all not, have we not all one father? Just as Moshe possessed this love because Hashem is his father, so too every Jew can possess this love, for Hashem is equally our father. We're talking about giving up life, surrendering self, for a father, but Hashem is our father. He's Moshe's father. He's our father. The Torah says, Banim atem Hashem You are children unto Hashem your God. Or, Bani Bechairi Yisrael, my son, my firstborn Israel. We are truly Hashem's children. He truly is our father. Moshe possessed this kind of love where he was ready to give up life itself, physical and spiritual life itself for Hashem. We have that too. And we're going to say, what? I mean, are we crazy? How dare we compare ourselves to Moshe Rabbeinu? In fact, if we look at the Torah, 
if we look at the Rambam, we realize that we cannot actually compare ourselves to Moshe Rabbeinu. The Torah says, There has never arisen a prophet in Israel like Moshe. So Moshe is unparalleled. And if we look at the seventh principle of faith written by the Rambam, he writes, We should know that he, Moshe, was the father, meaning the highest of all the prophets who preceded him, and also those who came after him. All of them were below him in their level for, of prophecy. And he was Hashem's choicest one from the entire species of mankind. Who comprehended more of him, may he be exalted, than was comprehended or will be comprehended by any other person who ever was or ever will be. So Moshe is def- definitely in a league of his own. And yet we are saying that we have within us the same love that Moshe had. And although one may ask, who is the man and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to approach and attain even a thousandth part of the degree of love felt by Moshe, the faithful shepherd? Let's not kid ourselves. How dare we compare ourselves to Moshe? So we're saying Moshe had this level of love where he really just surrendered himself like a son who's ready to give up his life to save his mother and father from captivity. But one second, Hashem is Moshe's father. Hashem is our father. We also have that within us. And we can ask ourselves, please, how can we compare ourselves to Moshe? And if you look at the language of the Alter Rebbe, this, this expression is paraphrase from Yirmiyahu, but the author says, Arav Levi, that his heart pledged him, or what's the word they hear over here? Presume in his heart. Who would dare presume in his heart? The Rebbe says, if we look at chapter 20, where we're looking at where a word comes from and tracing all the steps back before articulation, before we even think, the way a desire comes to us is a simple desire in our heart, pre-thought. Once we have a simple awareness in our heart, then it comes to our mind to think about it, and then it's able to come to speech. So this very, very early stage of desire is the stage that the altar was talking about. And he said, even at this stage, you haven't even thought about it. It's not something you spoke about. It's so early, even at that stage, who would dare presume himself to be like Maisha? How then do we say, that every Jew can feel the same love of Hashem that Moshe felt. <coughs> Alter was going to explain. Nevertheless, a minute portion and particle of his great goodness and light illumines the community of Israel in each generation. As it is stated in the Tikkunim, that an emanation from him, Moshe, is present in every generation to illumine them. 
Since this luminous particle is found in all Jews, in all generations, it thus becomes possible for every Jew, through Moshe's goodness and light, to feel the love that he possesses as an inheritance from the patriarchs in a manner similar to that of Moshe. So Moshe had this kind of love. Where do we get our love from? We get our love from, let's not forget, it's not originally from Moshe. We get our love from our patriarchs. Hashem has bequeathed a divine soul to us because we are the children of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So where does Moshe come into the picture? Moshe, who had this inherent love that every Jew has, manifested this love in a way of total surrender. That's who he was. Moshe was a man of total surrender to Hashem. Because his love was expressed in this way of total surrender, he gave us that same capability of having love in total surrender. Because he's not just any tzaddik, which every tzaddik is special and important, of course, but he is one of the shepherds. And what are these shepherds? They are leaders of the Jewish people who channel something special into our soul. Because Moshe was able to express his love for Hashem in a way of total surrender, that is channeled to us in every generation. We literally can have that. This kind of love where Hashem is everything. He is our father. We're ready to give up life itself, not just physical life, but spiritual life. Have no self-consideration just because we have this same love that Moshe had. Now, that sounds really exciting, but how do we get that? in practicality. And the Altar Rebbe is going to give us very, very practical advice. This is going to be like hands-on practical advice. How do we access, access this space in ourselves? Only the glow from Moshe's soul is present in the souls of all Israel in a manner of great obscurity and concealment. We all have it, but it's very, very hidden. So you can say, okay, if it's so hidden and it's a spa- in a space of great con- obscurity and concealment, then only special people can access it. We have it, but what does it do for us if it's so hidden? You know, think about the many, many Jews who have this love and some of them, let's say maybe just a few, don't act like Moshe. Why? They have this love. But it's not being effective for them because it's so hidden. So you can say, I have it, but it's so hidden. What does it do for me practically? And the author was going to say, no, everybody can access that deep and hidden place within themselves. But to bring forth this hidden love from its latency and concealment to a state of revelation so that it will be manifest in his heart and mind is not beyond reach, nor is it far off. So that's exactly what Moshe tells the Jewish people when he says, Ki mitzvah mitzvah I'm This mitzvah that I'm commanding you today, It is not beyond reach, nor is it far. For the matter is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Moshe told us it is not far off. In fact, that's what the Tani is based on. It's not just not far off to act in a certain way, but it's not even far off in your heart. To access these emotions is definitely within our reach. But it is very close to you in your mouth 
and in your heart. So that's what Moshe Rabbeinu says. He says, it is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do them. So we can understand that in your heart comes before to do them. Because what does it mean in your heart? In your heart means the mitzvahs of love and fear. When we feel love for Hashem, when we have awe of Him, then it gets us to do them. And what's in your mouth? In your mouth are the speech mitzvahs, like prayer, like Torah study, which should be done out loud. So now we have to ask ourselves, while we understand that in your heart comes before to do them, because our emotions get us to act, why is in your mouth before in your heart? So this is what the altar explains to us now. That is to say, it should be habitual with his tongue and voice to arouse the intention of his heart and mind for the sound of one's voice arouses the devout concentration of heart and mind. Meaning, in your mouth arouses in your heart. Saying it out loud brings your emotions to the forefront. And that's why saying things first with your mouth actually arouses the intentions of our heart. And this is an incredible concept. This idea that speech arouses our emotion is something that's visited a lot in Hasidus. And the Rebbe Rashab in his writings talks about how speaking about something clarifies our intellect so we understand it better. You know for yourself, when you study something and you get it in your mind, when you speak it out, a whole new level of understanding happens for you. And that is true with emotions as well. And I'm going to read you the words from the Rebbe Rashab, and this is in Ranat. And he said, When a person thought over the intellectual idea with the letters of thought before it came to be articulated, he did not know or understand the depth of the idea at all, as he does now while he speaks of it whole different level once he starts speaking of it. Because specifically now, during speech, the depth of the idea becomes revealed to him, etc. That's why Torah study has to be specifically verbal. The mitzvah of Torah study is verbal. Like the Torah says, and you shall speak of them. Right? Every single day when we say Shema, part of what we say is, you shall speak of them. And it is written in Mishlei, they are life to those that find them. And the Talmud explains, to those who actually announce them articulate them with their mouth. So it says, that they are life to those who find them and healing for all of their flesh. And Talmud explains, what is this word? So it means to those who find them, but it also means to those who bring it out of their mouth. You actually have to say the words. Once you say the words, the understanding of the words is on a whole nother level. And that's why Torah study should be verbally articulated. In fact, there's that famous story of Bruria, the brilliant wife of Rabbi Meir, daughter of Rabbi Hanida ben Shradion, who comes across a student studying quietly and she admonishes him and says, don't you know that if you study quietly, you're going to get, you're going to forget what you learn. The way to preserve it within you is by saying it out loud. So, 
One thing that speaking does for us is help us understand things better. Even if we read, if we haven't articulated, we don't understand at the same level as once we bring it out of our mouth. There's a special power in speech that allows us to understand things better. And then now the, the Rebbe Rashab is going to talk about emotions, what speaking does for our emotions, because that's what we're talking about here. We're trying to access th- these emotions that are in a very deep, hidden place within us. And the author was giving us advice. He says, talk about it out loud. Talk about it out loud. You're going to wake up these emotions. So let's look at this from the Rebbe Rashab. For example, when a person speaks words of love, we can perceive that speaking brings more light in the love. Because by speaking about it, the light of the love shines within the person to a great degree and he becomes more passionate, etc. The same is true with the attributes of strictness and anger. By speaking about it, the passion of the anger, anger and fury flare up to a great degree, etc. And that's why it is given advice in Reish's Chachma, a remedy for the attribute of anger. That at a time when a person is angry, they should not speak. That's what it says in Rashi's Chachma. And that is because through speaking, the feeling of anger is greatly augmented. And when a person does not speak when he's angry, then quite the opposite occurs, and the heat of the hunger dissipates. It quiets down. This is true with all the emotions. When they don't come to be expressed in speech, the passion of the emotion is reduced and diminished until they completely disappear. And the opposite is true when they are brought into speech. They are greatly augmented and expanded. So he said, when you speak about an emotion, you experience the emotion. When you speak about the emotion, you're bringing it into full-blown scale. That's what happens. So that's true with love. When you speak about love, a new light comes into that love. And the same is true with things like anger. When a person is angry and they speak about their anger, they're giving more energy and life to their anger. And that's why Rashi's Chachma says, don't speak when you're angry. You don't want to grow that emotion. And he said, when you don't speak about emotions, then they diminish and they dissipate. And Rabbi Steinsaltz in his commentary brings this idea. And I'm privileged that I have the editor's notes, you know, as they were translating and I asked permission to repeat this, so I'm not giving any private information. And they had this question, which I was struggling with, and that is, one of them said, I, I disagree. What about soldiers who don't speak about their experience and they have PTSD? So they're not speaking about their emotion, but they're suffering from not speaking about the emotion. I was like trying to figure it out and wrap my mind around the idea. I checked with my husband. I said, what do you think? I'm like struggling with this. I, I really understand that when you speak about an emotion, we all know that. You speak about it, the emotion flares up. But then you know about people who don't speak about the emotions and then there's a problem. 
And so he reminded me of the Hayyayim Yayim of 25 Sivan, which was just then a few days ago. And it was, Daiga Belev Ish Yashchena. So this is from Mishlei, and it says, when there's a worry in the heart of man, Yashchena. And the Talmud talks about it. What does Yashchena mean? So there was, there's Rav Ami and Rav Asi. One of them says, Yashchena means push it away. And the other one says, Yashchana means Yisichena. He should speak about it, La'acherim, to other people. So the Tzemach Tzedek, quoted in the Hayyim Yayim, says, what kind of people do you speak this over with? You speak it over to people who are only others. It says, Yisichena La'acherim. Speak it over with others, those who are only others bodily. But spiritually, they are truly one with you and they feel you. So it's very, very different when someone is speaking about it to speak about it, or they're speaking about it in order to release the emotion. So let's see, is Michal on class today? No, I don't see her. But I called my brilliant friend who comes to class a lot. She doesn't live locally anymore, but she used to, and I miss having her here at class, Dr. Michal Ness. And she has a PhD in a very unique field of medicine, and I know she's studied under some of the world's top trauma experts. And I said, what do you have to say about this? Chassidus says... That when you speak about an emotion, you give the emotion more life, you give it more energy, you're bringing it to full-blown scale. So how do you reconcile this with like therapy? And she said, absolutely. Every single time someone speaks about an emotion, they are reliving the emotion, re-experiencing the emotion, they're bringing it full scale. Why would someone do that in therapy? For that reason, to re-experience and this time resolve and release it properly. At the original instance, they weren't able to resolve and release it, so they need help resolving and releasing it. Sometimes that could be through verbal therapy. Sometimes it could be through electrical impulses like EMDR. But it's the idea of, yes, speaking about emotions augments the emotion. It gives it life. It gives it energy. It brings it full scale. Should a person do that on a regular basis? No. She told me that if a person you know, goes through something difficult, God forbid. And then they speak about it. So they went through it a year ago. Then they spoke about it three months ago. And then they're speaking about it a week ago. Then they have the trauma from three years ago, from a month ago, from a week ago. Because they're reliving the experience when they're speaking about the experience, which is incredible. It's something to really think about. I know someone who was in a bicycle accident. And thank God he recovered physically, but he was in tremendous pain and he couldn't get rid of the pain. He went to an emotion code healer who helped him tremendously. Baruch Hashem, he doesn't feel the pain anymore. And one of the advice that he gave him is stop repeating the accident to everybody who comes by. And you think about it. Why was he repeating it? Because people are curious, but they were kind of just nosy and curious. They weren't someone who, as the Tzemach Tzedek described, is itai imai, literally one with him and trying to help relieve his pain. They were like, oh, how did it happen? In which corner? And so he was reliving the experience, but not releasing it, just feeling it again and again. So this is the power of speech. The power of speech in that instance, of course, was detrimental. But here we can really use it to our benefit that a person has these hidden emotions that are so deep within themselves, such a high level of emotion, emotion on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu. So deeply hidden, how do we get it? How do we access it? The altar says we all have it. It's very, very near to us. And the key is in the words of Moshe Rabbeinu. Beficha in your mouth first, and then uvil vavcha in your heart. Speaking about it brings it to your heart. 
And there's a famous Hasidic master, the holy base Aaron of Karlin. And this is brought in the Sefer Birchas Aaron. He says like this, and we have to thank Hashem, blessed is he, for the fact that it is written in your mouth first, so that we can begin with a mouth, and then naturally it will come to our heart. But if it was written first in your heart, then where would we begin? So he's saying, thank God, Baruch Hashem, it says in the Torah, first in your mouth. Because then we can bring it into our heart. But if it didn't say in our mouth first, how would we start? So it's very similar to what we're learning here, but it's not exactly the same thing because the Alta Rebbe, as is the method of Chabad, starts with the mind first. And that's what he's going to say right now. Okay, so what does the Alta Rebbe say? He says, so as to immerse his thought in the life of life, the blessed Ansof, for he is literally our true father and the source of our life, and to awaken our love for him like the love of a son for his father. So here, even though we're using our voice, the voice is an aid to our meditation. Our meditation is we're truly immersing our thoughts in this idea that Hashem is the life of our life. He is our true father. And then we say it out loud and saying it out loud helps us bring the emotions out from this place of deep concealment into actual feelings that we can feel it. There is a story of the Kutzke Rebbe, one of his chassidim, when he was praying, he was saying, Tata, Tata, Father, Father. And one of his friends jokingly said, Dilma love aviv who? Maybe he is not his father. This is an expression borrowed from the Talmud discussing a case where, God forbid, somebody struck their father and then they're getting punished for it. And we have a question. We're punishing him, but how do we know for sure that he is his father? So he said, Dilma love aviv who? Maybe he is not his father. And the story was brought before the Katzka Rebbe. And the Katzka Rebbe said, by saying tate tate, by screaming out to Hashem, Father, Father, he will become his father. Putting it on our mouth and tongue makes it a real experience for us. Speaking about things creates an objective reality. And that's why these totalitarian regimes, one of their tactics were erasing certain words from the dictionary, erasing certain concepts from books, because the vocabulary forms the emotions and the culture of the people. When you delete words from the dictionary, you delete them from consciousness. And now that's not something that people speak about. The Navi Yirmiyahu says, Their faith was lost and it was cut out from their mouths. And Hasidic scholars look at that verse and say, you know why their faith was lost? Because it was cut out from their mouths. They stopped speaking about it. We have to speak about those things that are important to us. We have to speak about the fact that Hashem is our Father. When we speak about it, we take it out from just the abstract realm and we create a concrete reality out of that. Similarly, David HaMelech says in Tehillim, and this is something we say in Halal, He'emanti ki adaber, I believed when I spoke. But it can also be interpreted as, interpreted as, I believe because I spoke. Speaking about our faith brings our faith strength. The more we speak about it, the more it creates an objective reality because it's that bridge. You know, you think about things, but if you haven't articulated it, then it hasn't come to a place where it's more tangible. You know, imagine a child who hasn't seen his father for years 
And he, he doesn't feel anything for him. Then he thinks for one second, my father, and starts thinking about his father. He starts feeling those emotions of love and warmth and closeness, which by the way, it's a very interesting concept that even somebody who never met their father, like, you know, God forbid they were separated at birth or something. And then years later, they meet their father and they feel such a closeness and a rush of love. Why? Because essentially you're just one. So here, when it comes to a physical father, then, you know, we understand it's a tangible person. You think about it and the love comes. But Hashem, we don't see him with our eyes. So it takes a whole nother level. I mean, we do in a certain way, as we've discussed in previous chapters, seeing his life energy as he animates the world. And how do we bring this into our objective reality? By talking about it. Speaking about it and speaking about it takes it from just being abstract or hidden in our heart out to the open so we can have these emotions that Moshe Rabbeinu had. These emotions of a son who strives for his father and mother loves them more than he loves his own self. And when one accustoms himself to this continually, habit will become nature. So let's summarize this last section. And that is we talked about a whole new kind of love. This is a love beyond the love of my soul, I desire you. This is a love of someone who doesn't have any self-consideration. All they care about is their parents. Whose love was that? Moshe Rabbeinu's love. And yet we all have that within us because we all have one father. Hashem is Moshe's father. Hashem is our father. He had that love for him. We have that love for him. Because he experienced the love that we get from our patriarchs in this kind of way of total surrender, he gave us that ability too. That's what the Zohar says, that a manifestation of Moshe shines throughout all generations to illumine us. We get that within us. Now, you can say, okay, I get have it, but how is this effective for me? It's so hidden within me. Yes, you're right. It's so hidden, but it doesn't make it inaccessible. The Torah gives us advice. The Torah says, speak about it. When you speak about it, you call up the emotion. Speaking about it causes the emotion. And then by practice, practice becomes nature. Something that was seemed to be not our nature. We practice and practice and that becomes our nature. This is an idea that's brought up in Halacha. It's brought up in works of Kabbalah. Hergel na'asa teva. Practice becomes nature. Even if it appears to him at first sight that this is an illusion and that in truth he does not possess this love for Hashem and thinking that he does is nothing less than deluding himself as to his true spiritual status. You can say one second. I know I have the love, but the manifestation of the emotion, that's not natural for me. The love is within me, but it's hidden. And that manifestation, I'm having to practice, I have to speak out loud, and then I have to practice. This is a pseudo-emotion. This is an artificially produced emotion. So you can ask yourself one second, this feeling that I have is just imaginary. I'm creating this habit and it's imaginary. And that's exactly what we don't want to do. We don't want to be fake, right? The Torah says, the Torah is Teiras Emes, the Torah of truth. Hashem would never ask us to do something that was deceitful. The altar explains this is not at all deceitful. This is 100% the truth. He should not be concerned about it. Because it is intrinsically the absolute truth, even without his own spiritual service, by virtue of the hidden love which his soul possesses for Hashem. 
It is who we are. The problem is that we don't feel it. So you're saying, this feeling that I have is an imagined feeling. It's not real. It's created. It's artificially created. And Rabbi Steinsalz has an amazing distinction. He said, we have to be able to to, to distinguish between something that is false and something that is artificial. And it's not the same thing. We would never want to do something that's false. But sometimes we have to artificially experience an emotion that is truest to ourself. And that's exactly what we're doing now. This is our deepest, truest self. To feel the emotion on a regular basis, we have to artificially produce it. It's not coming to us spontaneously. But what are we producing artificially? We're producing an emotion that resonates with our truest, deepest self. Just think about how good it is to be artificial sometimes. Like, imagine that you are under tremendous pressure, you're in a rush, you're running late, and your children are acting out, or somebody is triggering you, and your most spontaneous thing to do would be to scream or act in in another way ungraciously. And yet you artificially act kind and patient. Your artificial way of behaving at that time was actually truest to your deepest self. You didn't want to scream at the kids. You didn't want to act ungracious. You were feeling tremendous pressure. Your spontaneous gut reaction might have been to be rude or, or inconsiderate. But by holding that in and artificially putting on a different kind of behavior, you're actually bypassing your fake nature and accessing your deepest nature. There's a story of people who were complaining to the author of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe, that his chassidim are fake. They pretend that they meditate. They pretend that they love Hashem. They pretend that they dive in with Kavana, but they're pretending. And he said, really? Really? Is that so? Then may the verdict of the Mishnah be fulfilled for them. What does the Mishnah say? The Mishnah says, Anyone who is not lame or blind, but pretends to be as one of these, he will not die of old age before he actually becomes one of these. So you're, you're saying that they pretend to have love of Hashem, that they pretend to daven properly? Good. May they not die of old age until they actually become that way. And similarly, people complained to his grandson, the Tzemach Tzedek, that his chassidim are colored, which was an expression to mean hypocritical. So on one occasion, he said, well, it looks like they like that color. (laughs) And another occasion, he said, it is impossible to be seeped in a color all day and it doesn't penetrate to the inside. So let's remind ourselves who we are. This feeling of being totally devoted to Hashem, like Moshe Rabbeinu, really and truly is our nature. Do we have to do some artificial practices in order to feel our nature? Yes. What is that? We're going to speak about it. We're going to speak about the fact that Hashem is our life of lives, that He truly is our Father. He's our Father, just like He's Moshe Rabbeinu's Father. That calls up emotions. And when we practice, that becomes our nature. Oh my gosh, it's an imagined feeling. It's not real. Don't worry. Actually, That is our truest nature because every single Jewish person has a hidden love for Hashem at their very essence. In fact, that's their identity. That is who we are. So that is it for class today. For today, and Chami stepped out. I want to say thank you, Chami, for class. (laughs) And I'm opening up for questions and discussion. Let me turn on my microphone because I shut this off.